です僕たちは確かに僕が一番恐れていたのは音を失うことだった今回は私たちの決まりでドライバーを用意しますというと彼女です渡美咲です僕はまだドライバーを君に頼むことに同意してない私が若い女だからですか1ヶ月半の稽古と2週間の本番ですずるい人だはいとそこまで失礼君はどうして広島に実家の裏が山なんです大雨で地滑りが起きて母はその事故で亡くなったんですお父さんって素敵じゃないですかとても君はこう考えてる僕たちは同じ悲しみを共有してる同じ女を愛したから僕の人生と愛はどうしたらいい生きていくほかないの<笑>私の方がおじさんよりちょっと不幸かもしれないそれでも私はやけなんか起こさないだから今毎日とても楽しいです Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of season 3 of Heroic Purgatory an Asian cinema podcast My name is John and with me as always my co-host Jason Jason how are you doing today? Uh, not bad, not bad. How are you doing? I'm doing well too.、Uh, it's been a while since our last recording, but I think、uh, it's finally time to start season three. And so we are doing, and hopefully, our, our recordings will become a lot more regular、uh, from now on until we decide to end season three.、Uh, or at least that's the plan, anyway. Yeah.、Uh, hopefully, we can get、uh, more films done this season. Absolutely. And the, the first episode of season three is, of course, it could be none other than the Oscar winner. A Drive My Car, directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Did I pronounce that correctly?、Uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Hamaguchi, okay. And,、um, and of course, that will fit perfectly with our season three theme, which we've decided to make it、uh, award winning films. That is, films that have won some kind of major award. And,、um, and it sounds, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a Bit like an odd theme, but I really like it. And I don't know, I don't know how, you feel about, uh, uh, how you feel about this particular thing, but I, I think it, it will give us the opportunity to talk about, I think, some interesting, interesting movies, it, things that fit in a particular way in the history of cinema, particularly Asian cinema, but you know, you know, not films that always necessarily stand the test of time. Yeah, we can go from niche titles to more mainstream titles. So there's a huge array of、uh, films we can tackle. And uh, as you uh, mentioned, we can also sort of see where films fit in history and track changes in、um, sort of national cinema. Yeah. And I think that's whenever I hear someone say, you know, like, oh,、uh, this movie, this, this bad movie won the Oscars or whatever, that proves that the you know, awards are nonsense or whatever. And I don't think so. I think. I think that's precisely the purpose of, of, of awards, of, especially in the arts. Is it's, not, it's not, you know, a validation of, you know, this is the best film and because it won a, a given award or whatever, that's set in stone that this film is great or whatever. It just, 
it's it's you know it's a reflection of the zeitgeist, right? It's a reflection of at this point in time and space, the community valued these particular piece of arts, and sometimes that is has political undertone, sometimes has social undertone, sometimes it has you know it might be also you know a valid artistic choice. But I think that's what awards. That's why they have a very important place in you know in in looking back at film history, and certainly our podcast is part about that about you know focus uh, looking at how the history of cinema has evolved in in Asia, uh, even though our scope is very limited, I think we are both interested in that yeah, and I think we can also um look at how uh, Western nations perceive uh Asian cinema as well, especially with like the recent wins of parasites and uh drive my car at various award ceremonies. Yes, and uh, was before the year before I forget. Ah, the year before. Um, the other oh, Japanese shoplifters, shoplifters. So that yeah. one is a big one, and of course, burning. Uh, that also, I don't think that won, but uh, that won an Oscar. But I think that was in the Cannes Film Festival. I think that was the big winner that year, or one of the big festivals. Yeah, it certainly made waves amongst the crit- uh, critical community. Yeah. Uh, so I think I, that's why I think I'm a big fan of this because it will give us an opportunity to see, you know, at, at any given point in time, what was considered, you know, what was considered award worthy. And I think that's the purpose of awards. But I think this maybe for the first time in the podcast will give us an opportunity to maybe discuss some films that we don't necessarily like, or maybe even films that we outright dislike. If if that turns out to be good, I don't think we've done. I think we've done films that maybe we are somewhat critical about but not films that we outright think they're not very good films, but, you know, they've nevertheless won awards for, you know, one reason or another. Yeah, I don't think there have been any major sort of scandals or disagreements about the film selection uh, we've had so far. Yes. Uh, and just to clarify a bit, I think we are, of course, we are, you know, going to be flexible and vague about what films qualify uh, in this category, but I think it's safe to say that we will consider films that have won major awards either you know awards in the major film festival like Cannes and Venice and whatever obviously academy awards and you know the i think i think it's also fair to consider the academy award the oscar equivalent in you know the respective countries like the hong kong film awards or the japanese academy awards or the uh, whatever korea has a couple of awards and other japanese blue dragon awards blue dragon and the golden horse and all those so i think those would probably i think qualify as well into uh, what films we may we may end up discussing in the podcast? Yeah, it's it's a great way of exploring films um, that go beyond sort of niche titles that film fans really love discussing. Yeah, and I always, I mean, that that's uh, following awards, either current or historical, has always been a major way that I discover films. I look at you know past award for whatever time I'm trying to decide what. Uh, what film to watch or what director to you know discover new filmmakers i always look at past awards and see okay what you know what film was competing in cannes in 1970 maybe that's a good place to start to discover films from 1970 i think that's that's a val- very valid way to discover new cinema yeah and uh you can track sort of where talents uh begin and maybe uh pay respects to where talents end <laughs> absolutely absolutely uh, so we'll talk about that, and you know, we'll we'll maybe all of you obviously, uh, you know, have our opinions about whether certain awards were deserved or not, and what they mean, and all that. Uh, and uh, the first item in that discussion will be today's film, which is Drive My Car. However, before we get into that, we have our usual preamble where we talk about uh, just briefly what 
what have we been doing since last time we spoke? So what has kept you busy, Jason? What, what media have you enjoyed and uh, consumed? So uh, I've uh, slowly been releasing reviews and interviews for Osaka Asian Film Festival films like North Shinjuku 2055, Howling and Sanka and Boy Sprated. And uh, it's been a, a, sort of a steady progress, not as quick as in previous years, but uh, I feel like I'm concentrating more on the qualities uh, upping itself a bit. Um, in terms of what I've been watching, I started Archive 81, a Netflix show. Um, found footage. Oh, did you, so did you? Does that mean you got net Netflix finally? Uh, y- yeah, I got Netflix. So like, uh, Cowboy Bebop is uh, on the horizon as well. But I see. One of the uh, like, I really wanted to get into the horror titles, like Archive Eighty One, and uh, that's like a found footage show. And I love the concept of like a mystery surrounding a cult in an apartment complex in New York, and um, snuff films, and a film student investigating it and a video restoration expert trawling through like recovered footage to piece things together like two decades later. Um, it's, it was cancelled after the first season. <laughs> um, I'm four episodes in, um, and it drops the found footage conceit pretty early on um, and follows the student recording everything. And uh, I, the present and the past tense uh, timelines mixed together. Um, but I... I uh, I really like is the atmosphere. Uh, the visuals and the audio are really strong in this show. What lets it down is the storyline. I feel like the writers are trying to jam too many concepts in. Um, but like at the end of an episode, I always feel like there have been like three or four plot, plot twists, and I would have liked to have just sat and enjoyed the atmosphere a bit more. Uh, so I've got, I think I've got four more episodes to go through on that. How many? So it's a total of eight episodes the season. Yeah, I think it's a total of eight episodes a season. Yeah, eight episodes. And it's only one season because Netflix cancelled it. Apparently, Netflix yeah. pick up shows and then cancel them after the third season, like Cowboy Bebop. Well, there's, they're, you know, they seem to be out of money, so it's uh, out of money and out of subscribers. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's uh, maybe they've entered a vicious circle in which... They cancel popular shows, so they lose subscribers. But it's also like the subscription-based model is not a very good one to have when you've entered a period of like financial instability. Yeah, I think so. Um, I remember reading, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I remember reading as, as early as five to six years ago that Netflix was indeed debt. And every, because of all the shows they produce, and every pretty much economist and financial analysts said, oh, this is not a big deal because their business model will allow them to make it all back and this is an investment and whatnot. And it didn't never made sense to me that how they could be something, it was like something like $20 billion in debt, which is ridiculous. Yes. And of course, they do have a lot of subscribers. So it's, again, a big company. So it's not, okay, maybe, maybe in perspective. But I think, I think that is coming back to bite them. Maybe they're just, they were overextending themselves with the amount of original content that they were producing, in addition to not being as careful as keeping content that was not original theirs, keeping it on the platform, things that, you know, they had to pay licensing fees, but still kept subscribers to their their platform. Yeah, it seems like the sort of business model where you need to keep investors investing, and to do that, you need to keep like subscriber numbers rising and we've seen a dramatic fall in recent yeah. months. 
I've actually even, I mean, I'm still subscribed, but I've considered dropping it because, you know, I'm just not using it anymore. I mean, I don't think I've, I've opened, I think Cowboy Bebop might be the last thing I watched on Netflix. I don't, I don't remember. I'm, I might have opened it to watch something here and there, but I don't use it on a regular basis. And I already am have like three or four other, you know, things. I have Prime and I have HBO that I'm subscribed to. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of getting, uh, and it's of course, it's a small fee, but, you know, once you have a bunch of them, it kind of adds up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as mentioned earlier, like uh, in a number of countries, uh, recessions are on the horizon. It's kind of like, this is a luxury people can't afford, which is why Netflix are talking about a lower price subscription, uh, which features ads in their shows. Yeah, which Hulu has already. And it's, I think it's working pretty well for them. Yeah. Well, Crunchyroll recently got rid of their free um, subscription or ad-based uh, uh, tier, and it's all paid for now. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if they have a significant drop in users because like a lot of um, Crunchyroll's uh, subscribers are the younger end of the uh, sort of age spectrum and they don't have too much disposable income. That's true. Although I do wonder with Crunchyroll, they sort of have a monopoly. I don't know of any other subscription, uh, anime exclusive subscri- you know, streaming platform in uh, at least in the US so they might they might be okay due to the monopoly that they have i don't know there there might be i'm just i you know i'm don't, i don't watch as much anime so i might i might be a little um ill informed on that regard yeah it'll be in- well a bit, yeah it'll be interesting to see how they perform like i haven't used my crunchyroll subscription uh in years so uh <laughs> i'm not too bummed about that i've just like not into tv anime anymore uh yeah, so what else have I been watching? I started uh or oh, Halo episode one was put on YouTube for like a week to drum up interest. And uh we talked about it briefly. Um like I've it was an okay episode. Um see computer graphics uh sort of like what you'd expect, probably as good as you could get it. Um the problem is like the covenant are too colourful to actually fit into uh reality. So they always stand out. Um and they had all the sort of uh, nods to the video game, all the sound effects and so forth that would get fans punching the air. Um, I felt like, again, with Archive 81, the writers were trying to introduce too many concepts in the first episode and some of the character choices. Like there's a girl who's the survivor of a Covenant attack and her parents are like uh, rebelling against the UNSC. And it's kind of like... She goes from being shell shocked at uh, ex- uh, encountering the Covenant to uh, being antagonistic towards Master Chief after he's rescued her uh, within like a space of a couple of hours. I didn't buy into that. Um, I had no recollection of the two characters, Halsey and Keys, actually being married, uh, which they are in the TV show. So I went back onto like the Halo wiki, and it turns out that they were in the game canon as well. So. I don't remember that at all, and I I played them not too long ago. Yeah, there's nothing uh, in Reach where Halsey's like, get to the pillar of autumn. That's where my deadbeat ex-husband is. You know, I, <laughs> they, see, I see, I see. Yeah, okay. So that's but, in, um, that's in the prequel game. Okay. Yeah. Oh no, there's nothing like that in the prequel game. Oh, there's I, nothing. Okay. Yeah, I've played one through four, so maybe it was added through a novel or one of the later games. Yeah, maybe. 
And uh, just to round this off, I watched the A24 film X. It was billed as the next big title in horror movies. And I'd watched uh, one of the director, um, Ty West's previous films, um, The Innkeepers, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, X is essentially like set in the 1970s and we follow a film crew down to a farm where they shoot a porno. Uh, this farm's in Texas. And so when things go Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, it's you kind of you've got the frame of reference there. Um, the porn stuff is played for laughs, and the kills are pretty efficient. Um, and it plays up the horror of like uh, old people and eroticism, and it's good for shadowing throughout the film. Um, but I felt like the most interesting element uh, of the film, Mia Goff's character, um, uh, who turns out to uh, be a bit of a rebel child running on drugs and self-help mantras like she was wasted i wanted more of her into like a cocaine fueled rampage i see and uh yeah apart from that if like impulse purchases on good old games last express and mystery of the Dru- uh, druids point to click oh. adventures and some rpgs planescape torment and darkest dungeon okay and, yeah i've played torment but darkest dungeon i think i might i think i might own it on steam but i don't think i've ever dabbled in it oh yeah it's like mixture of like uh lovecraftian horror gothic horror and uh like the horror aesthetic and the narrator is just so over the top it's fun when you're like in the middle of battle and uh he'll be shouting out many fall in the face of chaos but not this one not today (laughs) and that's been uh a lot of my media consumption not connected to uh what we're going to discuss today i see i see so it's been, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been a busy time with me and I, I, I did watch, you know, probably a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, I think TV, a lot of HBO. I've been watching a uh, young Sheldon, the prequel to the big bang theory, um, on, um, I'm still, I think I'm on the second season. So kind of steadily a, a few episodes a day and whatnot. I, and uh, I think it's a, it's a very different show. I mean, it's still a comedy, but I think it edges on the comedy drama side of it. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or if you've seen the original, the Big Bang Theory at all, but it's it's almost nothing like it. I yeah, I, I tried uh, an episode of the Big Bang Theory and I found it too middle of the road for my teeth. I see. I I've come to I, I've I initially my response to it was very cold. And I've sort of grown. It's grown on me. It's grown on me that I can even say that I kind of like it now. But it it took it took a long time. It kind of like a parasite. It kind of creeped into my tastes, <laughs> and uh, and it's kind of it's somehow managed to lodge itself. But I it it is somewhat of a guilty pleasure. Um, I watched. I started watching the second season of The Flight Attendant, which is another HBO show. Uh, okay. star, starring the actually the actress, coincidentally the actress from the Big Bang Theory, Kelly Coco or whatever her last name is, and it's it's a, it's an interesting show. I think I like it's. I think the story is perhaps a little bit too, at least the story of the first season. I just started watching the second season. Is it maybe per, per, perhaps a little too middle of the road thrillery? Uh, but I think the style and the visual aesthetics of the show I think are interesting enough to kind of keep your attention. And I'm kind of looking forward to what they will do in the season two, which was just released uh, maybe a few days ago. Mm. I've been reading, I read, so I read uh, a novel called Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson about the colonization of Mars. And I'm reading another novel. I don't think I'll finish it because it's not as interesting called A Desolation Called Peace. 
by Arcadia Martinez. That's a sequel to the to to the first novel that I think I mentioned uh, the last episode or so uh, from the same author uh, about it's a, kind of a space opera. And I, I the first novel was interesting. Uh, the second one is just not as interesting, so I think I'm I'm probably not going to be able to finish it. I don't I don't I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe not. And I think I've also, other than that, I've been uh, on a somewhat uh, on a Conan the Barbarian kick. So I watched I watched the original movie uh, Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 movie, because I had heard I had read that it is a strong influence to the upcoming movie The Northman. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I've heard that there's a lot of Conan DNA in that, and I haven't seen The Northman yet, but it's probably something I'm going to try to... I don't know if it's out yet. It wasn't... It's a very recent... I think it's maybe limited release in some theaters, and I, I'm not sure... I don't think it's it's out here in uh, in the region that I currently live, but if it is, it's only been out for like a very few days. So I'm probably going to try to watch that as soon as I can, but it's... Uh, I heard that Conan... The, the Conan movie... And maybe the Conan, the whole Conan character was a big influence on that. So that's kind of, that kind of said, oh, you know what? I'm going to watch Conan. And that kind of started me. And then I watched Conan the Barbarian. Then I watched the sequel, Conan the Destroyer, which is a, a terrible movie, but it's also a very fun movie. Uh, and it was pretty much an excuse to show Schwarzenegger shirtless for 90 minutes or so. And then I kind of read some of the Conan stories. I've never read the Conan comic books, but I've heard that they are, they might be, they're, 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 they're decent. So. Uh, I don't have access to them, so I don't know where I would watch them. But I think I think maybe one of these days I would wa- I would probably try to seek out the Conan comic books, uh, if nothing else, just to to compare them with the uh, written stories and with the movies. Yeah, there used to be a cartoon series as well. Yes, yes, I've heard there's nothing, uh, probably not nothing impressive about it. But yes, I, I do remember that there used to be a cartoon series. Yeah. And there's uh, and I didn't I didn't get to watch Red Sonia because that's sort of like the unofficial third Conan movie. Okay, uh, it's not he's not called Conan, but it's essentially the same character. Uh, I've seen I've seen Red Sonia. I just didn't see it. Didn't see it. Now it's 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 even worse than the Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> um, Diminishing returns. Yes, I th- I think it was kind of it was I, I think Red Sonia. So it's funny Conan the Barbarian is credited as. Starting, I think. I mean, I I personally think Conan the Barbarian is is a fantastic movie, a near masterpiece. But it's also very important because it's sort of credited as uh, starting this uh, sword and sorcery kick in the eighties. That and uh, Excalibur, a slightly different genres, but both of them are kind of credited for kickstarting this uh, fantasy. Just like Blade Runner kickstarted sort of the cyberpunk. Uh, the cyberpunk trend. I think Conan the Barbarian kickstarted this sword and sorcery, and Red Sonia almost killed it. That's how bad it was. People were very afraid after Red Sonia to to keep funding these movies. Yeah, I think I, I watched one of those uh, sort of um, cash ins, like uh, it was called Beastmaster with uh, Rip Torn. Yeah, uh, where he's sacrificing kids to some evil god. And, yeah, uh, Conan well, the Barbarian. So many, so many that that were kind of inspired, even from Hercules adaptations to. All through the '90s, and I think kind of in the '90s that that kind of obsession kind of stopped. We don't talk about Hercules anymore after Kevin Sorbo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which <laughs> I don't think it was even good, that good of a series. I think Xena was the more interesting series of the two. Although I do remember watching Hercules as a kid, as a kid, pretty pretty irregularly. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Everybody uh, likes Xena more. Yeah, Lucy Lawless is a cool person in real life, apparently. 
Yeah, yeah, she's she's uh, she's a fan, a fun uh, New Zealander. Okay, but I think I think that's that's it for my media consumption. I don't. I mean, I'm sure there's. I've I've watched other stuff that I probably can't remember now. It's been a while since our last episode. Yeah, but I think I think that's enough. Uh, so next we have our news announcement. So uh, Jason, why don't you go ahead and tell us what's what's been in the news lately that has caught your eye? So I suppose the big thing that. Uh both of us have been discussing is like uh Cannes Film Festival starts uh May 17th and runs to May 28th and there are a number of Asian films uh at the festival uh we've got Competing for the Palm Door Broker by Hirokazu Koreeda uh which stars Song Kang Ho uh who we've talked about in uh Memories of Murder and Number 3 and it also has Bei Duna, who worked with Koreeda on Airdol, and um, who worked with Bong Joon-ho on Barking Dogs Never Bite. Uh, she's worked in a, a number of Japanese films. Oh yeah, she also worked with Bong Joon-ho on The Host as well. So she worked with uh, Song Kang-ho, that means. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it looks like a patchwork family type of film where uh, people leave babies in baby boxes and Song Kang Ho's character finds new parents for the babies and uh, like that's his job he's a broker and uh, he's got these other people who he gets involved with and he's looking for uh, let's see they get involved with Su Young who placed a baby in the baby box but has come back for her baby so it's kind of like looking for a child he's given away and uh, yeah it's like judging from the trailer it's sort of like uh Fits in with Koreeda's typical metier, like uh, drama, patchwork families, and so forth. And then we've got Decision to Leave by Park Chan Wook. And that, is this his first film in like uh, a few years now? Um, yeah, well, I think, I think he was involved in that, uh, you know, British miniseries, like oh. a spy thriller miniseries that he did um, that was not too long ago. It was the. the uh, the Litter Drummer Girl. Okay. Yeah, because his last one was The Handmaiden, which was like 2016. Yes, and The Little Drummer Girl was 2018. Uh, and uh, I think he was involved in the Snowpiercer TV series. Okay. As a producer. Probably, probably just because I think he was a producer in the original film, wasn't he? Oh, right. I, th- I think I, I think so, or his company, or something like that. He had some involvement, I think, and so he probably he's probably like just a title role. I doubt he did much in that. Although I don't know, I I know nothing. Apparently, it's been going on for three seasons, and I I, I knew it was happening. I knew it existed, but I had heard nothing about it. And apparently, it's going. So maybe there's something about it. Although there's so much TV nowadays that you know. Yeah, it's hard to catch up on everything. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, Decision to Leave looks like he's switching genres again, and it's uh, Mystery Noir, and it stars Tang Wei, who is in Lust Caution, and uh, seems like she might be the femme fatale in like uh, a case of a man who dies in the mountains, and a private detective uh, starts investigating her. Which is interesting, because that's, I mean, that's sort of like neo-noir, you know, space is where I think he's shined the most. I mean, he's experimented with a lot of genres, but I think whenever he brings a little bit of neo-noir into every one of them, I think that's what he really, really, uh, that's where his strength is. Yeah, um, I, I, 
listened to a podcast you took part in and uh, you described um, Old Boy as a neo noir with uh, Homme Fatale. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not that's not my idea. That's a sort of a you know, it's been written about about this idea of the homme noir in modern in modern noir, where the sort of the the uh, I mean, homme fatale. So I said homme noir, uh, homme fatale, where it's sort of like this uh, gender subversion or switch that happens in a lot of modern neo noirs, and especially sort of in in uh, South Korean cinema. Yeah. So yeah, this one's also competing for the Palme d'Or. And uh, in the uncertain regard section, we've got, which has been set up to recognize unusual styles and new talents, we've got Plan 75 by Chie Hayakawa, which is an expansion of her segment of a, dy- of a dystopian horror anthology film, 10 Years Japan, which is the Japanese version of 10 Years Hong Kong. And uh, in Plan 75, um, the Japanese government uh, sets up a scheme uh, to encourage senior citizens to undergo euthanasia to remedy like an aging society. And uh, we follow uh, an elderly woman whose means of survival are vanishing, uh, a salesman trying to sell her Plan 75, and a young Filipino laborer. And we also, uh, at the midnight screening section, we have Hunt by Lee Jung Jai, who is in Squid Game. Uh, which is yeah. uh, another film, uh, another thing I'm gonna have to catch up on Netflix. But it's this one's set in the 1980s military dictatorship, and Lee Jung Jai uh, is a spy ace at the National Security Agency, hunting a North Korean spy chief in the South while becoming disillusioned with his own country. Yeah, exactly. So he's an actor. So this is sort of his directorial debut. It looks like it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think I think that's it for the news. It's mostly revolved around the can. Uh, film festival because it's happening, you know, right, you know, a couple of weeks as of the time that we're recording this. Uh, yep, May seventeenth it starts. Exactly, and not not that we will have any access. I think it's it's gone back to right. I I don't think it ever went online, did it? The can. I think they were always in person. Yeah, it's always in person. Um, like I think they found that like when COVID uh, nineteen happened, they found out some of their films to other um. Yeah, they cancelled that festival for that year, but yeah, in yeah, 2021, they, they, they never they never went online. Is my point? Yeah, they never went online. Yeah, and it's and it's. I mean, this is a high profile festival where you know it's probably gonna. These are films that we don't know when they're gonna be released in the West. It's probably gonna take a while or whatever. But I, I'm assuming you haven't seen uh, Broker or uh, Decision to Leave or Plan 75. No, I don't think anybody's seen them apart from the people okay, making so films. Okay, so that's why I'm saying I don't think they've even been released yet. I think they might be like their world premiere in the in, in Cannes. Yeah. All right, that's right. Okay, but I think I think that's good enough uh, for our news uh, segment, and so we can jump straight into our discussion of the this episode's topic, which is Ryusuke Hamaguchi's latest film, or you know, award-winning film. Drive my car, and we might also talk about the Oscars a little bit in general. But we'll start with it uh, with Drive My Car. And uh, Jason, as usual, why don't you give us a plot summary of the film? What is it about? So, very basic summary: Two years after losing his wife Otto, theater di- actor and director Yusuke Kafuku Kafuku uh, travels to Hiroshima in his red 1987 Saab 900 to put on a multilingual production of Chekhov's play. Uncle Vanya. Amongst the cast is an actor he suspects his wife had an affair with. Yusuke's work on the play and his relationship with a taciturn chauffeur named Misaki 
who takes the wheel of his car, helps him address his grief over the loss of his wife and regain his creative spirit. Okay. All right. Uh, that's nice and succinct, uh, something that the film isn't. Uh, <laughs> And I think that I think betrays my so okay so let's uh, so I did talk about this film a little bit because I did mention it I think I, I think it was last episode that I had watched it and I you know what I thought about the film and you know I thought I thought it was good and I think at the time I did predict that it's probably going to win the best uh, international feature Oscar uh, which uh, it did win but I think I also mentioned that my my you know i wasn't as enthusiastic about the movie that i had problems with it and i think i think after watching it again for in preparation for this episode uh i think i i think i would probably reinforce that opinion that i think it's a good movie i'm not you know i don't want to i don't want to give the idea that i didn't that I didn't like the movie but i also had a few issues with the movie but that's that was my opinion so you hadn't seen it at the time but you have seen it since obviously because we're covering it now so what is what did you think of the film why how did you watch it when did you watch it and what's your opinion of it i suppose i watched it for the first time two weeks ago um and i watched it in two parts because i started it on a saturday evening and um due to time constraints uh, i had to finish it on sunday morning and um i found it like even though it's three hours it goes smoothly so it, it didn't drag at any point um and i enjoyed the multiple layers that are put into the story theater sort of um intertextuality of other films and uh i like the way that the theater stuff was used as sort of like a, a greek chorus for the characters so it's really it's got it's really easy to enter into the story um and by the end i was quite moved by it i thought it's a really high quality production and i've i i've I feel like of all the films that were nominated for the Best Picture Award that I've seen, um, it was probably the best. I've only seen, uh, I'll have to um, say, admit, I've only seen Belfast, Power of the Dog, and Don't Look Up. And I, I started Licorice Candy, and I was enjoying it, but I didn't have enough time to finish it before we started recording this episode. I see. I see. So yeah, I was impressed. I thought it's probably Hamaguchi's um, most polished production. Um, it's like, really easy to understand moving um intelligently designed and a, a wonderful adaptation of uh, haruki murakami's stories and it's the sort of film that you could recommend to people to get into like foreign language cinema so i so again like i said i did enjoy the film but i think i'm going to play de devil's advocate here so maybe we can have this sort of like debate uh about so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to focus maybe on the negative of the of, of what I didn't enjoy about the film, just so we can not not so just so we can have this contrasting debate. So I, I just want to make clear that it doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the film, uh, but I do want to sort of represent the other side. And and I think the one thing that I would probably contrast the most is that I did feel the three hours of the film. I think there was specific moments that I think yes, I would cut this in a second. Uh, and there was several times that I, I think this 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 that i noticed that on the film okay do we really need to show this or do, does this really uh, need to be here and the first thing that kind of occurred to me is the whole i mean the film starts with uh, the whole uh, sub story about his wife's infidelity up until his wife's death and then uh, that's actually inter an interesting choice by the filmmaker is that that's where the credits start right did you i don't know if you noticed that 
Yeah, it's you get the sort of background that would usually be relegated to on-the-nose dialogue or maybe a, a few props like uh, uh, within the first 40 minutes and then you get the title sequence. And I felt like that was a really... Uh, I thought it was a good design choice. So one thing, one thing that, again, going back to the positive, I think that this is maybe the most, I think, representative adaptation of a Murakami story. Uh, I don't think I don't think so. I, I actually did read the story in preparation for this episode, and it's it's very faithful. And it's I, th- I don't think it's the best Murakami story that I've read. I mean, it's a it's I'm a bit curious as to why Hamaguchi or I don't know if he was the sole screenwriter of this or if he had another screenwriter adapting the story. No, there was uh, uh, another screenwriter, um, Oe Takamasa, I think his name was. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think I think you mentioned last time. So I don't know why they chose to adapt this particular Murakami story because it. Of, of everything and I'm a big fan of Murakami I've read a lot of his stories and novels and I did why they chose to adapt this because it didn't seem that but the, in the story that, that whole first part is treated as uh, exposition it doesn't the, the story starts where he gets a new driver and I can't help but feel that the film uh, that, that, that the film could have existed in that version now I, there are some important moments in that first 40 minutes that kind of help accentuate sort of the emotional confrontation between Kafuku and Taku what's the Takatsuki Takatsuki in their later's confrontation uh, but uh, but I, I I feel like there could have been expos- that could have been treated as expositions or flashbacks that are inserted which is what I think the story does and I think so one this while watching this and especially watching it for the second uh the second time, uh, just a couple of days ago, I couldn't help but compare it to the eel, because mm-hmm. it's this is this is the eel gone differently. This is I don't know if you remember what the main character of the eel was, but this uh, drive my car is if if the guy if the protagonist of the eel decided not to kill his wife, but then his wife dies anyway. So it's kind of the films, and then they have this they have this period of isolationism. Both characters, one due to due to being in prison, and the other due to his being emotionally closed off. But I think the stories are very parallel. But except except the eel is a lot more concise, <laughs> whereas this one just kind of goes on and for three whole hours. Uh, no, I thought those like having read uh, because this is based on three Murakami short stories, and I have to admit, um, okay, so I, I'm only familiar with one of them, the one that has the same title. I don't know that I didn't know that he takes elements from other stories. Yeah, so Drive My Car, as you said, is pretty faithful to the story post-credit sequence. But the pre-credit sequence, um, where you're introduced to the wife, comes from another short story called Shaharazad, where you get like her sort of um, sex and steamy tales, which she adapts, in, which the wife adapts into TV um, screenplays. And I, uh, I felt, I feel like uh, with a lot of Murakami short stories, they. Like they're unsatisfying. They they're more like story prompts for something larger, which is what Drive My Car um turns out to be. So you've got uh the wife's character, she's built up, you care a lot more about her and a lot more about her effect on her husband, and then when you see him work through his grief, it has much more impact. And um another short story that's adapted is Kino, which is about a guy who walks in on his wife having an affair and it's like throughout the short story he just denies himself the opportunity to actually confront his wife or confront himself about how he 
feels about that moment, and that's rolled into um, Kafku's character, and um, and it gets uh, explored throughout the second part of the film. I see. So, I mean, that that makes sense. Although, it, to be fair, I mean, Murakami has these has a lot of stories and even novels where sort of he recycles sort of situation and stories and even characters. Like a lot of Murakami protagonists are can be even considered, you know, essentially the same character. Yeah, they're all middle class guys. When we meet them, well, most of them are middle class guys. I In unsatisfying relationships, of yeah, some kind. There's, there's something wrong with a woman in their life. Maybe uh, they've broken up, had a divorce, and um, they're in the middle of making pasta, and suddenly a cat starts speaking to them, or they have flashbacks to a relationship that's left a mark on them that they can't get over, and you're seeing them work through it, and there might be some surreal elements to it. So, yeah, like Murakami has tends to recycle the same elements. And um, he's not very good. I think one of the criticisms people have for him is that he's not very good at writing female characters. And Drive My Car, by giving Otto, the wife, um, that backstory, makes uh, gives her more agency um, and also spends more time on uh, elaborating um, Misaki, the chauffeur's sort of character as well. And so a lot of design choices really help the story flourish whereas the original short story is kind of like you breeze through it it's kind of like forgotten the the one thing about murakami is that he's not the most cinematic of writers uh, i think that's changed with some of his later stories some sort of like post 2010 and i think that may be because a lot of his stories have been adapted and he's kind of a, aware of that so a lot of his later stories have been have become more cinematic, more visual in terms of his descriptions and whatnot. But I think, for generally, he's not the most cinematic of writers. And I do, I do agree that the story, especially Masaki's character in the story, is essentially just a sounding board. She's a non. She's not just a. It's not about her being or Murakami not being able to write female writers. She's essentially a non-existent writer. Um, a, a non-existent character. Sorry, <laughs> but again, it's a very short story. Uh, but but I don't think it was necessary the the whole to do to kind of give more more depth to the female character. I don't think that was the only way to do it. That's that's essentially my point. Yeah. Um. Like, how would you bring out that backstory then? But I, I like I said, through flashbacks. So let me let me go back to my point of how how I th- in my opinion Murakami's not the most cinematic of writers and I do I did take issue with how uncinematic this movie is and in the sense that it's it's 3 hours of mostly peop- people people t- sitting down and talking I see I I feel like flashbacks would be too much of a sort of a deviation gone off on a, a side track and uh this is all about constant forward motion until you reach the destination of catharsis <laughs> And uh, yeah, flashbacks are too unwieldy to do it. So you've got that firm base from which you start, and then you move forward to the conclusion. And like um, Hamaguchi's style is to sort of keep the cameras focused on the actors as they're reciting the dialogue and you're noting the changes in the actors. So it's a very actively movie. I, I, think, I think there's a very Ozuesque quality about it but i think with ozu like you could you could have the same someone could have the same complaint but about Oz about sort of ozu's sort of like style but i think there's a there's somewhat a more intent in like how ozu's protagonist kind of uh the, the ozu's lack of actions and i think there's the same thing the same kind of intent 
in Murakami's writing. I mean, it's very concise. There's very little happening, but you kind of have to to take your time and and kind of reflect as to what these particular moment means for for the for the protagonist, which I I kind of got in the film, but I also did not necessarily have the same impact with me. And it's it's kind of a gut feeling. That's why I'm having a hard time rationalizing it. It's this. It just didn't didn't have the same impact that, for example, the story had, or or some or an Ozu film had. For instance, the final confrontation with uh, Kafuku goes to Masaki's hometown, and they have that very heartfelt conversation. If I was your father, I would. Someone so forth. Be, when when they cry in front of her destroyed house. Yeah, and they hug. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when I was when I was watching that, especially for the second time, my brain said, "Okay, this is an emotional scene. I get that this is supposed to be an emotional scene." But my heart was like, "I don't feel any emotions. I, I just I'm just <laughs> tired at this point. I I have watched them drive for two and a half hours, uh, and do nothing else, and occasionally have chit chat, and I just don't don't feel." the emotion that I know I'm supposed to. So I am. I can rationally argue that, yes, I, I understand why this is supposed to be an emotional scene. However, I did get affected, I think, a lot with the actual film's final scene. With, because I think, I, think, I think the choice both from the story and I think uh, the directors to expand on the whole Uncle Van- Vanya subtext, because I think it's ve- the dialogue of Uncle Vanya is very relevant to what Kafuku is going through, which is in the story that's not expanded. It's, they mentioned that he's doing Uncle Vanya, but it's just you know it's just mentioned. I don't think uh, I, I don't think uh, th- there's any elaboration on that. And I think that part of the film, I think it's really it works brilliant. I think it it does affect you how you can sort of bounce off the subtext of the play Uncle Vanya versus what the characters are going through. And I think that to the same extent, how he still. Uh, hears his wife's recording while he practices for the play. Yeah, and that's what I meant by sort of different layers and intertextuality earlier, because um, like having that window into the character's subconscious just makes it plain and clear, and then you can enjoy the drama. I, I think that's true, and I also think adding something that is also not in the original story, and I don't know if it's any of the other stories that you mentioned, the subplot with uh, the, 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 a young actor the murder, the one that he actually goes to jail for murder. And I think that's a very sort of a very contrasting approach to grief that Kafka is feeling. Yeah, like Kafka tells Takatsuki that he's too emotional. And like, but we see the contrast, which is Kafka locks it all down. And the first 40 minutes, you can understand that his ability to withhold his emotions um, it probably damaged his marriage in some way, which and uh, further causes him to go into that sort of spiral of uh, grief. Yeah, but I'm just saying the eel, five minutes. <laughs> he goes to fishing, he comes back. Screen we, goes red. Exactly. We, we get it. Uh, he, we, can, we, can, we can fill in the blanks. Anyway, I'm, I, I mean, I, I know I'm being, uh, I'm being again, I'm, I said from the beginning, I mean, clearly I'm playing devil's advocate here. So I'm trying to focus on the negatives. Even yeah. though not, not so just to, just to contrast the, just to have perhaps both sides of the discussion. But I do think the fact that they expanded on on the on that aspect and they expanded on the play, I do consider those very very wise choice by the director and the screenwriter. Absolutely, because I think those do help bring something that the story perhaps was lacking. Lacking. 
I think, uh, yeah. Oh, just before we move on, Reika Kirishima, who plays Otto, she was in Norwegian Woods, um, another okay. adaptation, and Hidetoshi Nishijima was the narrator in um, Tony Takatani. I love Norwegian Wood. I think it's a great movie. I, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I remember really liking it. And I'd also remember thinking, this is a very, it's not a, as a faithful adaptation, but I think it's a very faithful in the sense that it captures Murakami's voice very well. Yeah, I reread my review and uh, I've, I think maybe I was a bit too harsh on it, but I felt like it didn't uh, translate all of the details of the novel very well. Yeah, so I, it's not a faithful adaptation in terms of what it keeps and what it is. I think it's also maybe perhaps a little bit too more sentimental than Murakami is. I don't think Murakami was ever a sentimentalist. Uh, he's a romantic, but not a sentimentalist. And I think there's a distinction between the two. Uh, and I think Norwegian Wood is a bit, perhaps a bit more melodramatic, but I still think despite that, I think it captures the voice the voice of, uh, of Murakami in spirit, at least. And I think another movie, which The Burning, which is also based on a Murakami story, I think that's a fantastic movie, but I don't think it captures Murakami at all. Oh, no, that's... This is like what I said about story prompts. It's kind of like Murakami set it up and Lee Chang-dong's like, okay, I'm going to take this and make it my own. Yes. And put all these social critiques in. Yes. And I think Murakami, well, I think, yeah, Lee Chang-dong, I think that was just a, a jumping off point to, to tell the story that he wanted to tell anyway. Uh, yeah. Whereas, whereas I think both uh, Norwegian Good and especially, I think, Drive My Car were faithful adaptations of Murakami. Even though, of course, obviously, they, you have to take some dramatic license, and they really capture, I think, especially Drive My Car might be the most faithful adaptation, not just in terms of the content, but in terms of sort of Murakami's voice. Like, just watching the images on screen, it's perhaps almost as equivalent as to someone, someone with a nice voice reading Murakami's narration. Which is what Hidetoshi Nishijima did in uh, Tony Sakatani. <laughs> okay, I, 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 have to, I have to watch that movie. It's really good. It's very spare, minimalist story about loneliness, and you feel that emotion like pierce your heart throughout that film. So, what did you make of this thing? I mean, this, this again, this is also a minor criticism, which is irrelevant to the movie because it's not meant to be taken literally. But it kind of bothered me that this guy does all these multilingual plays and they're somehow popular. Like, let me let me give you what really would happen: is this would be. If someone went and did this, specialized in this multilingual plays that he does, it would be the kind of thing that a few art students go to see in a tiny basement theater uh, somewhere in like Southern LA or whatever. Uh, and it's, it would never, certainly never make anyone as popular as Kafuku's character <laughs> is in the movie. Oh, I don't know, because there was a stage adaptation of a number of stories from The Elephant Vanishes put on by an Anglo-Japanese uh, theater group. And that, and that seemed to go down pretty well. This was back in like 2004, something like that. I remember seeing it on television, like a review of it on television. But that was a one-time thing though, right? Uh, as far as I'm aware, yeah. So Yeah, I mean, I, this guy seemed to have made a career out of that. I, it's, it's not impossible. Like, I, I can't talk about like the theater world in Japan, although um, the screenwriter Takamasa Takamasa Oe does have background in that. He does write. Uh, he does writing uh, for the stage, and you and so that translates into like all the theater stuff that we see in the film. Yeah, I mean, the, the, of course, that's true. But I'm just talking about this whole multilingual aspect of the play. So what, what did you make of that? What do you think? 
what do you think it says sort of about the character and about the story? Does it? Do you think it has any significance, or do you think it's just like an interesting a thing that just makes the character a little bit more interesting? Well, they made it like he's well again. He's not very good at expressing his emotions, whereas like the whole point of a multilingual play is that people can't understand each other's words, so they have to understand each other's physicalities and reach out over that divide. And he's also a theater director, uh, so that shows some of his controlling nature. And it's kind of like the whole process of working on a play with others and reaching across the divide and actually having to let go all these different contrasting things uh, come out in his storyline. So I thought it was integral to his character. Yeah, he's also a bit of an interesting theater director and uh, a bit, a bit I, don't, I don't think there's any point where he gives explicit directions to the character. It seems the entire, his entire preparation is about people learning their timings. Like, I don't think he does any of the traditional directors say, oh, wait, say this like that, or blocking, or move like this, or maybe a bit louder, maybe. Okay, he gives, I think at one point says, go a bit slower, but that's mostly for the timing, so people can learn the timing easier. Uh, so can they, other actors can act, can count until when he's done, and then say their part. But he doesn't really give, and even... They're, they have that little uh, fight with the Taiwanese actress uh, where he, she says, tell us what you want, and says, I don't, you don't have to do better, you just have to read the, the thing. I don't know what he says, but something like that. Yeah, that technique's called a flat read, where the cast just sit down and read the dialogue and internalize it, so then they can get the sort of uh, master it, get the dramatic potential, and then play off each other. And uh, Hamaguchi, uh, I think Hamaguchi uses that style in some of his other films, like A Happy Hour, which was his 2015 film, lasted five hours. Um, he took a bunch of non-professional actors and uh, in a workshop, and uh, he gave them scripts, and he put them through that flat read sort of um, uh, technique until they could get a movie ready. I see. But I mean, you still direct the movie afterwards. You still, you know, do more. That is just the preparation for for it. Yeah, that's. I think I feel like that's uh, priming sort of like the audience for more subtext. Yeah, yeah. So I I enjoyed the the theater stuff, um, the way it's shot. Like I think people commented, it's like documentary, like, and it, it does fit in with um, Hamaguchi's style. He does. Uh, he does have something of a documentary background because he shot like uh, a few films in the north of the country called Storytellers, um, where he inter well, uh, uh, people who survived the tsunami and earthquake um, are interviewed about um, their uh, experiences, um, folk tales about the area and what's uh, changed. And he always, I feel like he always comes back to like familiar techniques. Such as like uh, like workshops and um, documentary techniques, and also like um, revisiting uh, similar styles of uh, similar locations. So you feel like you can you can see how he's how his career is building. So I did get yeah. So I did get that you know this is like this particular style of sort of like quiet sort of under uh, underhanded technique is sort of like. Uh, even though I haven't seen, I see, I did get that. The, I did get a sense that the director was very comfortable, sort of directing the actors that way. But you did mention I haven't seen any other Hamaguchi films. I'm assuming you have. You did say that this is the most polished of his films. So what did you? Could you elaborate on that? In sort of in what way is this more polished than some of his sort of other similar films? So I have seen Touching the Skin of Eeriness, which is like 2014. Um, 
Happy Hour, 2015, Sacco 1 and 2, 2018. Touching the Skin of Eeriness, it was, it's kind of like uh, a 90-minute trailer for a bigger film. It's kind of, it, it, it's a genre film because it's got a bit of horror, a bit of uh, a mystery uh, detective story to it. And it ends just as the story's building up to something. And uh, yeah, you, you wanted more. But it's got a strong atmosphere. Happy Hour is a five-hour-long film, so if you were bothered by the running time in Drive My Car, you're going to be driven crazy by Happy Hour. Pa- possibly, yeah. The thing that bothers me is that I could, in my opinion, just to be clear, the, I th- I would easily cut some stuff. That's I think I think watching long films is not necessarily a problem if I can like you know what's the uh, the crazy there's a crazy film by Sonacion. Oh, Love Exposure. Love exposure. I I wouldn't cut a second of that film because it's. I think every second, and probably objectively speaking, I'm sure someone else could offer a different opinion. But I can I can tolerate that because I think every minute adds to the story significantly. I just think that this, this the same is true for other films that I would, and that's what I think sort of gets to me. But you know, maybe Happy Hour if it's if the five hours are merited. Uh, you know, who knows? It is like get um watching um non-professional actors um, doing a very good job, doing a very, very good job because they did, like the four central actresses did win like the Best Actor Award at Locarno Film Festival um, 2015. Um, but it, again, it's kind of like you're watching this like sort of mundane dialogue, looking at the changes that are slowly happening between the characters, inside the characters themselves uh, and, and the actors. And then you've got Asako 1 and 2, which was an adaptation of a novel, which is like uh, two hours long. Um, Masahiro Higashide, Erika Kurata, is probably notorious for like the moment like the two had an affair and it broke up his marriage and caused a scandal. It's got sort of Hamaguchi going to Tohoku. Um, it's got his long winding conversations done in long takes. Um, it's a bit more playful because there's an element of chance and uh, fate uh, playing uh, with this unconventional romance. Um, I'm not sure if it all adds up at the end, though. Whereas Drive My Car is like, you've got Uncle Vanya bringing out the subtext. You've got a really simple story of a guy. um, You see his uh, sort of uh, background. You see his journey towards catharsis. And uh, yeah, you've got all these layers like helping you along to that way. Uh, along to the conclusion yeah and like i said i did really like so i, I do think the author does a good job at sort of drawing out the the sort of like the the conflict between uh kafuku and the young actor whose name i keep i keep sort of forgetting it's uh takatsuki takatsuki uh and i think i i still think comp- con- similar to the short story masuki is a bit of a sounding board uh rather than a fully fledged character but at least i think they do have that moment where they connect, where I think you mentioned this, where he says, I killed my wife and you killed my mother. And while none of them are guilty in the traditional sense, I think they are guilty in the sort of the, a more subtle sense. And I think they are able to sort of like connect uh, and have this, especially uh, Kafuku's characters having this revelation. I'm not sure Masaki has any kind of revelation, but Kafuku's characters have this revelation that he kind of sort of ends up accepting his wife uh, for uh, what she was. And maybe being able to live with it. Yeah, and Misaki, like, I think she has that sort of, like, he, Kafku, helps bring her to that revelation that she has to sort of forgive herself for what she did to her mother. 
But but do do we get the sense that she ends up forgiving herself? Does is that ever sort of like did you get that impression? Because I, I I do understand that. Um, well, it's because he says, if I was your father, I would say, don't blame yourself, but you you did kill your mother, he says. And of course, that could be a little bit of reverse psychology on his part, but do we get the sense that by the end, she's able to forgive herself? And there's, of course, that final shot of her with the dog and the car uh, looking happy. Well, there's the, the scar on her cheek. So she's kept the scar on her cheek. She says she could have uh, had, I think uh, she could have had it removed. A doctor said she could have had it removed, but she keeps it to remind herself. And then in the final scenes, you see like the scars kind of fading. Yeah, it's 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 barely visible. That's 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 fair. Uh, so another another sort of along similar lines, and I don't know if I missed this or if this was really a point. Does uh, Kafuku stop using his eye medication in the second part of the film? Yeah, you don't see I you don't see him use it in the second part of the film. That's what I'm saying because it's because in the first part we definitely see him using it, right? Yeah. Uh, after his accent, but I was trying to I wasn't sure if maybe he does use it and I missed it because you know obviously it's a very brief thing. Uh, and I wonder if he's punishing himself exactly in the same way as Masaki is punishing herself with a scar. It could be. Um, I just took it for granted that he might still be do- using it. Yeah, well, we can assume, of course, he's doing it and just the director didn't think it's worthy of showing. But I don't think that's the case because there's this whole sort of like a double meaning of blindside. And I think it's more, I think in the in the short story, I think they make it, the, he kind of makes it a little bit more explicit about sort of this like play on words with a blindside, his literal blindside with his eye. And then the blind side that he had with his uh, his understanding of his wife. There was this one blind side with his wife that he never saw. And of course, exactly, I think the same thing goes in the movie. And I'm wondering if there's that sort of a relationship that was supposed to make with him trying to accentuate that with without... Uh, because the doctor says clearly, if you stop using it, you will go blind. Yeah, there's no cure for glaucoma. Yeah, which I didn't know. It kind of freaks me out now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everybody wants to check their eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm, that's. I was watching it and I said, "Oh, I, I probably should check my eyes." I, I think I had the same reaction. I need to see my optician. Yeah, because it's like you know, it's like a pressure thing, right? Like your blood vessels in your eyes uh, have high pressure or something. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, could be. Yeah. Well, well yeah. It, it catches him off guard, just like finding out that his wife's having an affair. Is, oh, having a face catches him off guard. Do you think? Because uh, I think in the in the short story it's explicit. Do you think in the in the movie I got the sense that I wasn't sure if his wife was having affair with many men, or did he just say that to hurt to hurt uh, her lover when they're having that conversation in the car? That as to say, oh, don't think you're special. My wife slept with many men. Did you think that was just a ruse, or do you think that's really true and we're meant to take that uh, on face value? Well, in the story, he gives a very specific number, and he says he knew she was having an affair. At least four, he says. He knew that it's at least four, whereas in the movie, we, we, don't, know, we don't have any sign that he would know for sure, although his reaction to catching his wife uh, in the act seems to suggest that that is not the first time that he's had to, do, he has had to go through that. Well, you can imagine that He's like just like being blindsided by that guy. He's blindsided by his wife having an affair, and like he's unable to talk to her about it. Like he gets the sense that she might have wanted to talk about it, and um, he's cut himself off from her. Um, and that's due to their daughter's death, partly due to their daughter's death. 
And you can imagine that he's been turning it around in his head. It's like, she used to tell me all these stories that were turned into dramas after we had sex. So if she's a successful dramatist, um, did she come up with all these other stories by sleeping with other men? So he doesn't have, it doesn't seem like he has absolute proof that it's Takatsuki that he catches his wife with. He, um, and it doesn't seem like he has absolute proof that she might have been having a lot of affairs, but he can't, he can't say either way. Yeah, so, so he's kind of like, it's been turning over in his head and um, perhaps like he just thinks worst case scenario. And he's punishing himself by clinging onto the car, which is kind of like a mausoleum, and listening to his wife's voice all the time. Uh, yeah, do you, I mean, uh, again, an, an, another note of uh, levity, uh, listen, because we only, we only hear the one story, we have no idea what her other stories that would turn into successful TV dramas. Can you see that story on TV? The one, I mean, I don't know what Japanese TV is like, but I can't imagine that any story like that would <laughs> would actually make it on TV. Although it is a very Murakami, it sounds like it's another Murakami short story. Like that's probably the kind of story that Murakami would come up after sex, but not something that you would ever see on TV. That's taken directly from Shaharazad, which is a Murakami short story. I see. Okay. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. But of course, again, we're not meant to take it literally. It's, it's more of a, of a sort of like another window into the psychology of, of Otto and to the psychology of their relationship. Because I think we, you can also draw a lot of parallels with that story, especially the part that uh, Kafka finds out later that he didn't hear about mm, uh, with mm. their sort of like, the, you know, the connection of how she thinks that her uh, dreadful act will be, she will be confronted with it, but instead she finds nothing. She finds just more surveillance mm. and like being shut out, especially with, especially I think the story ends with she cannot longer find the key under the mat in the front door uh, and sort of like being shut out. And maybe that's what she felt with her husband, not confronting her about, you know, her infidelity. Yeah. And that kind of, that kind of, I suppose you could say that helps him solve the mystery that his wife leaves that he's able to confront the fact that okay i i I was never able to talk to my wife about the loss of her daughter and about the affair and she could probably tell from his physicality and uh, like in the aftermath of discovering the affair that something's up and with the car accident she wants to sort of right the relationship in some way and he's blaming himself all these years later I'm not sure if I answered your question or not. <laughs> no, no. It's, it, I mean, it's a complicated. I think. I like. I think that's what I like, and I think that's why I said the film captures Murakami very well because you know, despite the, I think the brevity of this Murakami, and I'm, I'm comparing Murakami's entire body of work, not just this particular story, is that it, they're very simple on face value. Uh, they are almost like prompts, like you said, but I do still enjoy them because they they do raise these questions that, you know, I think sometimes it's better not to answer them and sometimes it's better not to expand upon them because they leave you with these sort of like so many questions. And that's why I think this film does so well at capturing at capturing his voice. But it, it has some, some, I think, moments of levity, like I think, you know, like at least in me, that there's no way that drama could ever be on TV. And also uh, when, <laughs> when they're having a, a kind of dinner with the, uh, oh. with the Korean family. Yeah, and the, ac- the actress. Yeah, so the, the actor who speaks in, um, uh, in sign language, in Korean sign language, apparently. And uh, he, he's asked about the driving of Masaki, and he says, literally, she slows down and speeds up very smoothly. <laughs> and the whole time I was thinking, what kind of dinner conversation is that to have? 
Yeah. Like it's it's such a weird thing to say. I don't know. Maybe it sounds less awkward in Japanese, but I can't imagine like such a trivial thing as driving being being elevated to to dinner conversation. But that's kind of like the compliment that like of course, he yeah, of accepts course, her yes, into yeah. his world. Like he's happy for her to take control. I think that's exactly a line in the short story, except I think it's internal monologue. But it's kind of I don't know. I, I just found it an awkward thing to like. I laughed at that because it's like, what kind of what kind of dinner conversation is that? I think it's very honest. Like the like the whole thing at the start of the Hiroshima journey is like I'm refusing to let anybody else drive this car, and then he changes his mind. And like if you're trying to get uh, Kafka to change his mind, you you, you want to know what he thinks. And he gives a, a, a line like that, you'd be like, oh, right, it's working out really well. I'm glad she's not crashing the car. <laughs> uh, true, but it just that specific wording of it is what I'm, I'm sort of like referring to. It's, it's a very awkward way to phrase it. But I, d- I, I guess it's it kind of like a, like a car enthusiast would be like, yeah, it takes the corners really well. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's fair. That's fair. It's uh, something that I probably wouldn't care about, but I think it does sort of make sense in the context of uh thing another interesting thing is uh you know the the taiwanese actress janice chang hmm. is a bit of a teacher's pet i don't know if you got that vibe from her uh yeah a bit <laughs> you know she tries to not contradict she tries to complimenting saying oh what did you think uh oh yeah i agree with you i agree we should have done this better like it's a, it's she's she has a bit of that vibe and i feel like it annoys uh tatakutsani uh sorry what uh, takatsuki uh, takatsuki i well, i don't uh Tony Takitani and Takatsuki, they kind of blend <laughs> into my head. And sort of, I kind of, it's always an amalgamation of the two. But yeah, it kind of annoys him at times. Uh, I also find it like a little bit uh, interesting that they end up sleeping together, even though they, she doesn't speak Japanese and he doesn't speak English or Mandarin. Well, I felt like that was kind of like, uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's kind of like a reference to, it probably isn't, but Masahiro Higashide, who was in Asako 1 and 2, who had an affair with his co-star, and it's kind of like he turned out to be a womanizer. So he was like an up-and-coming actor, um, talented. Uh, he appears in um, oh, he appears in Confidence Man, JP, which is like a, a big, um, big franchise film. He also appeared in like... Uh, Movies like the Kirishima thing, and um, he married in uh, Anne Watanabe, who's the daughter of Ken Watanabe. I'm I being see. a complete gossip there, but um, like scandal broke when uh, it was revealed that he was uh, sleeping with co-star Erika Karata on Asako One and Two. Okay, but she was Japanese though, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So He's... they could communicate. That's that's, that's <laughs> a big difference. But he continued his womanizing ways, and I felt like Takatsuki's sort of uh like like kafku says to him you had such a great career like how could you fool around with all these women it it probably it probably isn't due to like you can't get away with that in japanese society maybe it's not um hamaguchi commenting on that but it felt like it was i can't imagine him being the only actor who's sort of who sort of had scandals like that i mean it's an acting especially at the star level that they are is is uh is filled with these kind of stories. So I don't so I I don't I don't know that I mean maybe, maybe not. But it just shows like his impulsiveness and confidence. And like confidence translates across all languages. Yeah, of course. And if you're good looking, that's uh Oh that helps a you lot. Don't, you don't have to try very hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but uh but yeah, but I think I think I I think more than his womanizing, I think the 
but the most dangerous is his temper. He just can't he, he can't seem to let go of things. He's almost a sort of a being of pure instinct in a sense, which is I think uh, Kafuku uh, sort of comments about how that makes him a good actor, though a terrible you know social creature. Yeah, uh, so because he's the complete opposite of Kafuku. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's like he, you know, when he wants sex, he gets sex, and when he he gets angry, he punches someone. It's almost that uh, that that simple with him. That's why I said sort of a, a being of almost pure instinct. Yeah, and yeah, I would I would like to see a movie with him as well, just coming out of prison, maybe like a the eel type of situation. I I don't know what to make of the fact that he admits to it readily. Like, did he admit it because he was caught on camera and there was not no choice? Or was there something revelational uh, about him admitting his crime? Was there something, uh, some something prideful uh, or something, uh, inter- you know, important about his character that he admitted that he had done it? You get the sense that his meeting with Kafka has shifted something in his character, especially after they have to talk about what Otto meant to each other. So maybe it's him, like, have having to confront his own inner demons, and he's at the beginning of his own journey. I mean that's that's interesting. I, I mean the last conversation that they have with Ka, that he has with Kafuku is uh, is the one on the car, right? And I got, yeah. I always I got the sense that that was more more transformational for Kafuku than Takatsuki. Uh, but it's uh, like, like I feel like Takatsuki did not. He was sort of like the messenger there, and not the not the messenger or the receiver of message of of the message. In that particular, scene. I didn't get the sense that he was affected. I, I don't know. May, maybe it's. I, I think. I think. I think that's. I think both more all Murakami characters, and why I think this film does a good job at translating them is that they are not far from open books. Yeah, it's like that conversation with Kafka is kind of like um, revelatory for Takatsuki because Takatsuki understands that he wasn't just the only guy, and Otto's feelings for Kafka ran deeper than he could ever have imagined. So it's kind of like his immaturity, his like running on pure id, like beating up people and having sex whenever he wants, um, has it, it can no longer sustain him and he has to face himself. So when the police confronts him, he's like, yeah, this is probably my time to sort of do some reflection. Do you think, do you think that uh, Takatsuki was really hurt when he found out that he wasn't the only, uh, only one of uh, Otto's lovers? Yeah, you can imagine that he's got like the way he behaves in the rehearsal. You can imagine like he's uh, 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 accosting his fellow actress, his fellow actor, and kissing her, and uh, you know his you know physicality and his confidence. Like for the first time ever, he's like having to sort of reckon with like he's not all that. I mean, I get I get that, but I I also think you know I also would strike me as a guy who doesn't necessarily take relationships that seriously but maybe meeting Kafka and seeing how deep the relationship with Otto was makes him consider of uh, you know the value of relationships yeah although you know obviously he ends up ruining everything uh because of his bad temper and the fact that he can't stand other people taking pictures of him yeah which is okay what camera nowadays still has that like ridiculous shutter sound well, yeah, this is. I think it's peculiar to Japan itself. I don't is quote it? me on this, but I think this it's um, a, a law or something um, to do with like um, brought into combat upskirt photography. Interesting. Because Interesting. when I I remember being in a coffee shop um, 
talking to some friends and uh, we were all taking pictures of like cakes and coffee um, and uh, they were as, like, oh, as one does. Yeah, you, you just like, you're in a foreign country, you just start taking pictures. Um, and uh, yeah, they were like, oh, your, your camera doesn't make the shutter sound? I was like, puzzled. It's like, oh, well, why would it? And I remember reading somewhere that in Japan that shutter sound is actually put on phones. Interesting. I mean, I, I guess that that's a valid explanation. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna look this up just so I don't sound crazy. <laughs> I wonder how paparazzi do their jobs. Uh, well, they get they have to run away very fast. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. Especially if they try to photograph someone like Takatsuki. Yeah. So even when you take a screenshot on your phone, uh, it makes the shutter sounds. So yeah, it's due to privacy concerns. It's not something required by law, but it's taken up voluntarily by all Japanese cell phone vendors. Regulations, self-regulations have never been made publicly available, but like the big ones have implemented it to prevent, the big cell phone providers have implemented it to prevent secret filming and other privacy issues. I see. I mean, that makes sense. I, I mean, I'm sure if you really wanted, you could disable it, but we can all assume that was just some random guy at a bar that didn't, you know, didn't have... Uh... Uh, didn't didn't have any. Just saw a famous actor and wanted to take a picture, which yeah. is weird. I mean, again, it's it's. I think it does show, uh, it does show how volatile uh, Takatsuki is because you know, obviously, as a famous person, you have to be used to other people people taking pictures of him. But I think there's something so disturbing about him, his personality, that he just couldn't. Again, it's like I said, a, a being of pure instinct that he couldn't uh, sort of like op or he couldn't put logic on the forefront at any point. Oh yeah, but there, yeah, like that second incident, like he had so many moments where he could have just walked away, but he walks directly to the cameraman. Obviously, not, he didn't deserve to die. Far from it. But it is, he's kind of asking for a beating because he takes a picture of him in the bar and then he follows him outside and he's like standing, what, like three feet away. And he just kind of like turns around and hopes that he will be avoided. Just, uh, well, just like uh, Kathku was blindsided by the car earlier due to his glaucoma. That exactly. guy is blindsided by how violent but his target would be. A bit audacious. Uh, so, do you think again, uh, changing changing a little bit topic? Do you think there's any significance to the name Kafuku? Because it sounds to me, whatever, like it sounds to me too much like Kafka, and we do know that Murakami has a bit of an obsession with the name Kafka, both the name itself, because Murakami is known to just like like the sound of words sometimes, but also because he's a big fan apparently of, of Franz Kafka. He has a novel. Kafka on the Shore, which stars a character called Kafka, then I think he uses the name Kafka in a couple of other short stories, if I remember correctly. It's been a while, but I'm pretty sure I've seen him like make that reference. And a lot of his stories sometimes have Kafkaesque, Kafkaesque elements, and it's one of his arguably one of his biggest influences. So I wonder if that was intentional or if this is just a coincidence in this particular case. I think it's just coincidence. It's, a, it's a, more of a punning than anything else. Like Kafka, like there's nothing in Kafka on the shore apart from like isolation and confronting oneself, the usual sort of Murakami themes that connects to Drive My Car. Oh, no, but okay, but there is uh, in Kafka on the shore, there is a lot of elements, Kafka esque elements in the story. Uh, Kafka on the shore, but nothing that connects to Drive My Car. Yes, but in the Drive My Car, yeah, maybe not so much. I think, I think this struggle, this sort of existentialist struggle, of the main character to to understand meaning is 
I think there is something Kafkaesque about it. I don't know if you've ever read The Penal Colony. I have not. By Franz Kafka. It's about, again, it's, it's very sort of like, it has this surrealist, like a lot of Kafka's, uh, Kafka stories are, they have this surrealist element. And it's about this island, this, again, the penal colony, where the offenders are punished uh, with this sort of like massive machine that carves the crime into their skin. Like oh. the entire sort of like uh, court's, you know, court's judgment, the, the, the text carves it into their skin and it's so painful that by the end when it's finished carving it is uh uh the person dies and that's their punishment however during the process the process of the machine carving their names and through all that pain and 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 suffering uh the all the prisoners die happy because they have this epiphany oh that sounds like a French film Martyrs or something. It could be, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. But I, I think in a less macabre sense, I think that's what Kafka is experiencing. He, ha- he has to go through the, suffer- the suffering, this almost absurdist suffering about not understanding why his wife cheated on him, even though they have this very, very happy relationship and very happy marriage. Uh, but in the end, to have this epiphany that is never quite spelled out, of course. Uh, in the same way that Kafka never spells out his characters at Pifinis almost ever. But he so somehow is able to find peace, and so Masaki is able to find peace. And even uh, Taku, uh, Taka, Takatsuki is somehow, in, in a very weird sense, he is also able to find peace through suffering. So I do think there is a Kafkaesque element to, uh, to drive my car, although may perhaps more subtle than some of Murakami's other stories. Like Kafka on the shore, and like the uh, wind up bird. Oh, wind up bird chronicle. Wind up bird chronicle. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Or, or even, even um, uh, the one of them. Uh, one Q eighty four is a more of a science fiction story, uh, but uh, I don't know a, a bunch of others. I mean, it's it's a common it's a common style that Murakami kind of aspires to, like the sort of like surrealism and magical realism approach yeah. to many of his stories. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know. I was wondering if there was something there or if, or if it's just, uh, I don't know. It cannot be, I, I, I mean, they do, they do talk about his name, how his name is unusual and how it means, uh, what does it, I don't know if you remember what it means. It's like bringing good fortune into the house, something like that. Something like that. But I think the sound of it, I, I, I just can't, can't believe it because it's also the same name in the original story. Yeah. And it's also, they make a point about his name in the original story as well. And I can't, I can't imagine it being a coincidence. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with Kafka's works other than he's got one where someone turns into a cockroach and that's about it. Yeah, so so that's the, the metamorphosis, the most famous. I am. I, I'm a big fan of Kafka, so I've read quite a, quite a bit of him, just as much as I am a fan of Murakami, of course. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you you went on to describe how there's a Kafkaesque process to sort of reaching that catharsis at the end for the characters. Yes, yes. I, th- I think that particular, it's more subtle than some of Murakami's other story, but I think that particular does have parallel that particular aspect of the story does have parallels to Kafka. Okay. Okay. There were a couple of interesting shots in the film, like for example, um, Kafuku standing at the door watching his wife have sex with another man. The, oh, the great wide angle shots of like uh, oh, like the landscapes and the, yes. the red car yeah. traveling through. Yes, the, but, but they're few and far between. But yeah, loads of profile shots and close ups on the faces, so you can like. 
enjoy looking at the actors as they're sort of like translating onto the screen how their characters are changing through yeah, but the process after, after of long three conversations. Hours, it, I've enjoyed the char- actors' faces. <laughs> I think that's that's let, going back to my same gripe about the the runtime. Uh, I, I can. I mean, I'm not. I'm not objected to this style, and I think this again. In in as far as what he is going for, I think the cinematography and the editing, particularly, perfectly. It doesn't cut too fast. Like it doesn't do the thing where he cuts back and forth between actors is talking, which was a lot of these dialogue-heavy movies do, which is absolutely tiring. So I think those, in so much as what the director was going for, the cinematography, the editing, the the design, the art, design, the production design, all. I think do their job uh, effectively. Well, it's like Misaki's driving; it just shifts gears so effortlessly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, just... yeah. The, the the film is like Masaki's driving. Yeah, you yeah you could just sit back and enjoy the ride. And uh, I think yeah, I, I I've got more patience as I've grown older and much more mature. I've got more patience for this type of film, this type of story, rather than love exposure. Which I don't think I could stomach sitting through again. I have less patience. I, mm. you know, a six hundred page novel, no thanks. A, a <laughs> nice tight, a nice tight two hundred page, any day. And it's not <laughs> like it's not even it's not even about the time. It's I think it's a, a more of an aesthetic choice because I I can I'm happy to read three two hundred page novels rather than read a one six hundred page novel because I, I think I've come to appreciate conciseness. It's not about spending the time. Like I'd rather watch two 90-minute movie than a three-hour movie. In general, again, I, I, there are many... Th- Schindler's List is a three-hour movie that I don't think there's a second too long because of just the, the movie. Uh, uh, and I said the same, lo- the same thing about Love Exposure, although just to, to add to your comment, I haven't seen that in a, quite a while, so maybe I would feel the same if I watched it now. Yeah. No, yeah, I, it probably comes that... Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it sounds like you really got a lot from the characters from the interplay between film and the stage production it just could have been more concise um i'm a bit more forgiving i i think so and it's not it's not i mean again i i i i will repeat again that i am playing devil's advocate in trying to sort of because you came because you came so positive in your opinion of it i feel like i have to step back a little bit and present the other side not that i i i did i did predict that this movie would win the oscars and and deserve the oscar for foreign language and deservingly so uh but uh i think i'm a big fan just to make it general again i'm a big fan of sort of uh hemingway's iceberg metaphor that i'd rather see the tip of the iceberg and infer the the giant portion of it that is underwater that rather than see the entire iceberg so yeah, uh, the last Hemingway uh, novel I read, I tapped out <laughs> once he got to the races. I was just like, okay, Ernest, I'm done. Well, I mean, it probably. I mean, not, I think some of his novels are pretty forward thinking, but obviously, not everything is going to be uh, is going to be uh, flush with today's standards. Oh no, it doesn't even have to be today's standards. It's just like I wasn't invested in watching journalists and flanners in Paris travel over to Spain, I was not interested. However, watching like these characters uh, process their grief, uh, traveling the length of Japan in Drive My Car was enthralling. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fantastic film. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, obviously we, our season's theme is uh, with uh, uh, awards. So what award did this film win? 
This is a uh, indie film from Japan, and yet it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay uh, for Hamaguchi and co-writer Oe Takemasa. It, uh, In the best, Japanese Academy Awards, right? Yep. Best Actor for Hidetoshi Nishijima, Best Cinematography, Lighting, Editing, and Sound Recording. I would say. I would say they were all richly deserved. I want to look at. I just want to look at what the competition was. There was uh, "Under the Open Sky" was another film nominated, which I believe you enjoyed and I enjoyed too. Yeah, I. Uh, the Blood of the Wolves too, which is okay, <laughs> just okay. In the wake. In the wake. I'm drawing a blank on that one. Uh, it's um, uh, directed by Takahisa Zeze. Oh, nine okay. years after 2011. Yes, 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 the- yes, yes. It's a tsunami, earthquake stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, it's a flickering life. Anyway, oh, uh, just, I just oh. wanted to mention, if, 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 if you think there was anything that could potentially offer competition to drive my car. Under the open sky. Especially with Koji Akasho's performance. Yeah, I, I, I would agree, yeah. Again, another film that is very much has the eel vibes. It's a powerful story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Koji Akasho's performance is just magnificent. And... Uh, yeah, thinking about it, maybe he should have um, took Best Actor. Yeah. But I think um, like maybe there's something political because there was recognition that um, Drive My Car was winning all sorts of accolades around the world because uh, I think by that time it won numerous like critics, circles, uh, Best Picture prizes. And uh, yeah, it also won like Golden Globe for International Feature, as well as the BAFTA. For Best and the International Academy Awards, of course. And, and, and they won the Cannes for Best Screenplay. I, yeah. I don't know if you mentioned that already. Oh, no, no, I haven't mentioned that. But the Academy Awards came later. So yeah, maybe it was kind of like the build-up to Drive My Car winning all the awards at the Academy Awards, which it didn't happen, which didn't happen. Yeah. And of course, the, the best picture, you, you did say it, it's, in your opinion, the, the best. I, I still maintain that uh, uh, The Power of the Dog was the most deserved. I don't think Coda was deserved at all. And again, it comes back to the discussion um, uh, to the discussion of awards. I don't think Coda was nearly in a good of film. I don't think anybody will be talking about Coda in three, four, five years today. But it's, again, I think that's what awards do, reflect the zeitgeist. And I, I can see why Coda, a film like Coda, won won the awards this year even though it in my opinion it's not the best film of the year yeah i i enjoyed watching power of the dog and i thought it like um great scene setting performance by benedict cumberbatch was magnificent and kirsten dunst was good she was a bit of a red herring uh i felt yeah yeah um and another uh, again just uh to defend myself a little bit so people don't call me a hater of slow film another slow film yeah it's not it's not a fast-paced action film by any means. It is a fairly slow, uh, quiet uh, sort of like drama. Not not too different than Drive My Car in that respect. Yeah, uh, it's a western, and it's completely different from a lot of westerns. It's not like your Randolph Scott or Clint Eastwood type. In the loose sense of a western, yeah. Yeah, set in the same time period as the Wild Bunch, I think. So post World War One, and you see the encroachment of civilization on the Great Plains and. Um, like uh, flappers and cinemas out in the wilderness. Were you able to see the dog on the hill that they were talking about? No. (laughs) I was was not either. Yeah. (laughs) I was straining to see it. I couldn't. I guess I wouldn't make a good cowboy. 
No, yeah, I, I guess, I guess not, not, not in Montana anyway. <laughs> Even though the film was actually shot in New Zealand, from what I've, uh, I've read. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, and I, of course we can always. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you uh, want to make any comments about the sort of like the big event of the Oscars, which I didn't watch. I think this is the second year that I don't watch the Oscars. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the second. I didn't watch it last year either, but I've watched it before. And of course, the big event is that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, which. Uh, was a bit of a ridiculous thing to do, but it's also I, I don't care that much. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I don't. Think, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to add to this conversation. I just I felt like it proved Don't Look Up's point, which is the mainstream media always chase after nonsense stories rather than yeah, important issues. Of course, I again I would like Don't Look Up, another movie that I enjoyed a lot, but obviously I didn't expect it to win any awards. I think it's a movie that it's kind of like it's it's a somewhat of a topical satire, and it's kind of a movie that probably won't age as well, depending on how events go. But I do think that for the moment that we're living in, it's a very uh, very poignant movie. Yeah, comedies comedies don't often win Best Picture, do they? I would say though that I did not think uh, Will Smith was the deserved winner of Best Actor. I think either. Uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch or Denzel Washington from the tragedy of Macbeth uh, w- gave better performances. Although uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I can see why he didn't attract so much uh, favor from the voting. And uh, Washington, I think Shakespeare plays is I think nobody will give a best actor to a Shakespeare play anymore because it's just so, so, so overdone. There's a Shakespeare movie every year. There's just that nobody will give an award to that. Yeah. Ah, uh, what well, the Northman is supposed to be an adaptation of Hamlet, is it? That's what I've seen. And and Conan, and Conan, <laughs> or it's influenced by Conan, but I think it's meant to be an adaptation adaptation of maybe Hamlet. I I don't remember. The greatest crossover since Marvel Cinematic Universe began. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so anything else either about the Oscars or about Drive My Car? We do. I mean, uh, we do. We did sort of already talk about sort of other Murakami adaptations and what we stand, but I would you, is this your favorite Murakami adaptation? I, uh, I, that's tough. Um, rewatching Norwegian Woods, I liked it more than I initially did. Um, uh, Tony Takatani, you, you can't love that film because it just leaves you devastated. Um, <laughs> Burning is really, really fascinating because of the class consciousness and the literary aspects to it which totally um subvert the story uh midway through um and it's a great mystery um drive my car is probably the most satisfying of all the murakami adaptations that i've watched um yeah so it's, it's joint first between burning and drive my car i see i see uh i mean i would say burning as you know maybe my favorite film out of those but being that it's not that faithful of an adaptation i think the probably my favorite film in the sense that i i enjoy the most watching is norwegian wood mm. uh again it's not the best film I, I i will not say that it is the better film for any of the adaptation but it is i think a very uh maybe even even call it somewhat of a guilty pleasure because i thought it was a very fun film to watch and it has a, a fantastic performance by what's the the guy that played L on death note uh Kenichi Matsuyama yeah i mean i i love i especially back then i loved that actor i watched anything that he was in and i think you know that i think that was an attempt to maybe do more serious roles and get out of sort of like the genre a yeah. trap and i don't think it worked out for him very well i don't think he's been in that many things uh after that many, you know, 
quality things uh, or non-genre things. But but you know, I think he was very good in that, and he gave a very he was a very it was a very good casting, let's just say, for that character. Yeah, he gave a, a good central performance that um, the other char- the other actors could work around. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, like very sensual film, um, really plays into the idea that these are memories rushing back to the narrator as like they were transformed to a period of his life. Okay. So I think the one question that we're probably going to ask in every episode of this season about is, did this film w- deserve its awards? I'll just say yes. <laughs> just to keep it simple, I, I feel like it's uh, a nice slice of mature filmmaking, uh, which touches upon a lot of themes. It's a really, really good adaptation of Murakami's works, three of his stories dovetailing into each other nicely. Very well shot, brilliantly acted. I became invested in all the characters and their sort of emotional journeys. Um, and uh, yeah, I was moved uh, throughout the entire film. Okay. And I, I would say yes, definitely. I think it deserved the awards that it, it won. Uh, I don't know who won the Palm d'Or this that year, last year. Oh, it's, uh, uh, I think it was the French film Titan. That- okay, oh, yeah. Yes, we did talk about Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, so I don't know who won, but it certainly deserved the, the, the Academy Awards and maybe the, the awards of the Japanese Academy uh, as well. And I do think that it is, a, I think, a great example for you know, future generations to look at adaptations of Murakami War and to look at this as an example of a great Murakami adaptation. Again, I, I had problems with it. I think you could easily cut some some time of it, but I think it nevertheless was, a I think, a very good film that deserved the awards that it got. Uh, agreed. All right. So I think I think perhaps this is a good place to end our discussion of uh, of Drive My Car, very good film, and I think this is also a good film to start our season three. So we haven't we haven't decided what uh, what's the next film, but I, I propose that we do Parasite. Okay, yeah, that's easily available on Amazon. Now we're going back to South Korea, and maybe the next episode, maybe we'll see see if we can go to Hong Kong or some other place. But I think continuing, I think Parasite will be a very Nice contrast because it was, you know, the the same. It received as much attention, perhaps a little bit more attention, but that was the big film of that year, just as Drive My Car was the big Asian film of this year. Yeah, it was like the great big Asian movie that everybody was talking about. And uh, hey, everybody's going to start watching films with subtitles again. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I would say that it is perhaps indirectly responsible for Squad Game, Squad. Squid Game. I said Squad. <laughs> I suicide. I mixed again. I blended Suicide Squad, but uh, but because it was a bit of a Suicide Squad. But uh, I think I'd say it's partially responsible for Squid Game and the popularity of the Squid Game. I don't think you have Squid Game without Parasite. But all of that will be covered in our Parasite discussion. But I think that's a good uh, second episode for the season. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. So I think that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, please please please. To, to go to our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or uh, message us on Twitter at, at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we hope you have a good time.